0: Philippians 2.5. And the reason I emphasize the Bible and looking at the Bible, if you can, is that what we share tonight is not based on our opinion. It's not based on my ideas. It's not something I've derived or come up with myself. It is something that is here in the Word of God. And that's why Christians are so hung up on chapter and verse. They want to know what God's Word says and how it speaks to life, because the Bible itself says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And it also says that we're born again by the seed of the Word of God, that God can give us a brand new kind of life based on what this Word does. So God works through this Word, and I would urge you tonight to listen to it with that in mind, that it's not Keith speaking, or it's not Brother Cooper speaking, but it's God speaking through his word tonight. Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a, ser- of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Tonight I want to talk to you about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the antidote to ourselves. About a hundred years ago, there was a newspaper contest in England, where a newspaper ran this contest for the reading public. They were to write in and write their answer to the question, what is wrong with the world today? And an English man of letters wrote back and said his name was Gilbert Keith Chesterton. And I wouldn't agree with a lot of things Chesterton wrote or said, but this I thought was spot on. In answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? Chesterton said, dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. What's the answer to the question, what's wrong with the world today? I am. I'm the reason for the problem. You are. You're the reason for the problem. We human beings are the reason for the problem. As I said in an earlier message, our default position as human beings is self, thinking of ourselves. Now, don't get me wrong. God has created us as individuals. We're not here by accident. We heard Brother Cooper speak about that. God made this place, Yosemite. God made each one of you. In fact, God made you with the intention that you should have a personal relationship with him. And until you have a personal relationship with the God who made you, you're not achieving that for which you were made. Your life isn't going to make sense. Nothing is going to be ultimately satisfying. You won't have what the Bible describes as true peace. You won't have lasting joy. You won't have a settled hope and an assurance for this life, nor for what lies beyond this life, to what the Bible says is a world to come. Because as long as you don't know your creator, you're alienated from God. You're a stranger to God, the Bible says. But God created us to know him. And even when we as human beings, when our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, turned their backs on God and said, we'll chart our own course. And even as each one of us, the Bible says, has followed that example, that we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That God nevertheless still seeks to bring us back, still seeks to have this relationship with us. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest man who's ever lived on the face of the earth, because he was more than a man, the Bible says. 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. John 1.14 says, And the Word, the eternal Son of God, that is, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. That one came, and he said, this is why I'm here. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19.10. The Lord came looking for us, and these verses we've read in Philippians 2 describe that for us. Now, God created us as individuals, and as individuals, it's natural that we think about ourselves. God has put within us the impulse to take care of ourselves. And it takes a lot of really bad things happening to someone in life to make that instinct depart. A few years ago, I watched my father die, unfortunately, a very slow death. And in watching my father die in a hospital bed and watching him decline, I marveled at how he clung on to life. Now, my father knew the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I can speak about him tonight and I can say with assurance that even though he was my best male friend in the world and the man who probably taught me more about life than anyone else, that I am glad he is with the Lord because I know he's in the best place that he could possibly be. But even though he knew where he was going and he wasn't afraid to die, and he was ready, and he was 70 years old, and he had done things for the Lord, and the Lord had used him, and he was ready to depart, still the instinct of that body was to cling to life. Still as the various organs of his body shut down, the man still went on and still lived, even longer then the doctors and nurses thought he would. Until finally, as we were gathered around his bed, and my good friend Larry Price, whom many of you know, was standing there with me. And we were there praying. We couldn't sing. Our hearts were too full. But we were there praying, and we were there quoting the scripture to my dad. And he was lying in a comatose state. And I said to him, Dad, I said, remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said when he was on the cross. He looked to the thief that was there and the thief cried out to him and looked away from himself and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the Lord Jesus said to that man who looked away from himself and looked to the Lord Jesus Christ, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be in paradise. I said, dad, that's what he told the thief. And it's true for you. Today, you will be in paradise. And when I said that, my father took his last breath. And I said, praise the Lord. It was like God underlining it in my life. Your father's not here anymore. He's with the Lord. What 2 Corinthians 5 says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Not because my dad was a good man. He would be the first to tell you he had not been a good man. He would be the first to tell you he was a sinner saved by the grace of God. He would be the first to tell you that his only hope and claim on being with the Lord was what the Lord Jesus Christ did for him in bearing his sins in his own body on the tree, in dying for Bruce Kaiser's sins, and dying for the sins of the world. That was my father's hope of eternal life. And that's why I have the assurance today that my father is with the Lord Jesus and I wouldn't wish him back. Now that's a natural instinct. To want to cling to life. It's a natural instinct to want to feed our bodies, to want to get a drink when we're thirsty, for example. So I shall avail myself, consider it an object lesson. (laughs) I come with props, you see. We'll call it that at least. It's the natural instinct to think about ourselves. But the problem is that we push it too far, don't we? that we end up becoming self-absorbed. And it all becomes about us. There was a hip-hop group when I was younger from Philadelphia, and they used to sing, It's Just Me, Myself, and I. And I said, yeah, I can relate to that, you know? That's how we think. Even here in Yosemite, I come out here and I say, oh, this is marvelous. There's facilities where I don't have to come into the forest with a pickaxe like Paul Bunyan or something. And I don't have to hack down the trees. I can walk up a nice manicured trail and I can see the vista. Well, at least I could see the vista if it wasn't for all of these stupid, stinky tourists around here. All the unwashin' hoi polloi from the various campgrounds around. Uh, no offense. But if all of these other people weren't here, I think I could enjoy Yosemite just a bit more. I'm not speaking about conference attendees, of course. I mean the other tourists. The other unwashen smelly people in Yosemite, you know? It's those people that really bug me. Why do they have to clutter up the buses? Why do they have to fill up the lines at every concession and every gift shop? I could really enjoy this place if it could just be for Keith Kaiser and his family on demand. That's what we want, don't we? We want an on-demand universe. We want to be able to watch anything we want. If I want to watch every episode of Magnum P.I. in chronological order, I have the God-given American right to download it and watch it, don't I? I have the right to go to the grocery store at 3 o'clock in the morning if I want to. I have the right to drive 15 miles over the speed limit or 20 miles over the speed limit. Now, if somebody else flies by me, I say, look at that nuts but it's okay for me to do it, right? And that's how we can be if we're not careful. And if we're honest, you know, there are uglier sides to our personality. What we can be sometimes when we're alone, what we can contemplate in our hearts, the lusts that can arise there, the illicit desires we can have, the hatreds and the bitterness that can form against our fellow man there. You know, really, when you get to know yourself, it's not a pretty picture. If you could see me as I am in my natural state, my natural habitat, apart from God at work in my life, it would be a most ugly picture. You wouldn't invite me to the conference. You wouldn't want to sit here and listen to me. You wouldn't want to be in the same town as me. You'd say, such an evil man. Well, you know what the Bible says? We're all like that. It says, for all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Now there's two tenses in that verse. That's found in Romans 3.23. When it says, for all have sinned, that's a past tense. So if you attain to any kind of age where you can make a decision for yourself, no one had to teach you to sin. You do it naturally. You break God's law, albeit you probably don't even realize it most of the time. As the hymn writer said, Years I spent in vanity and pride, Caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. We really don't know how bad we are until we take a look at the cross and see what the Lord Jesus had to suffer to put away our sins. But not only does the verse say, for all have sinned, past tense, it says, and fall short, that's a present tense, of the glory of God. In other words, I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior in 1980. I, as a sinner, although I was only seven years old, I recognized I was a sinner. I knew I had broken God's law. I knew I deserved hell. And I cried out to God and said, God, I'm trusting in nothing else but your son and what he did on the cross. Save me a sinner based on what the Lord Jesus did. I didn't understand a lot of theology. I didn't understand a lot of verses I could quote to you now. I still don't understand a lot of things about the gospel of the Lord Jesus, so deep and profound it is. But God saved me. I passed from death unto life. But you know what? I still fall short of the glory of God right now. I'm not what I ought to be. And praise God, I'm not what I shall be, but I shall be one day conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will be remade like the Lord Jesus Christ, inward and outwardly, not because I'm special, not because I'm better than anybody here or anybody in this park or this world, but because God in grace has saved me and he's working in me to will and to do of his good pleasure and to make me like his son. And he won't give up on me until he's fully finished that work. So that he can populate his abode in heaven with people that aren't self-consumed. People that are like the Lord Jesus. Because if anyone wasn't self-consumed, if anyone could never be said to be selfish, it would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider what we've read tonight. Paul is exhorting Christians in Philippi, telling them, Now, this is the kind of attitude you need to have. This is the sort of mindset. Let this mind, this way of thinking, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what kind of a mindset did the Lord Jesus have? Well, consider what the Lord Jesus was from all eternity past. Who being in the form of God. Now, those who know the original language here tell us that that phrase is just filled with nuances. For example... When it talks about who being, it's a continuous tense. It's the idea that he always was and continued to be this. And when it uses that word form, it's talking about what he essentially was in his own nature, what he really was. What was the Lord Jesus from all eternity past, before there was a creation, before there was anything else? What was the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, he was God. It says, who being in the form of God, verse 6. He was existing there in glory. You know, there was a, and I'm going to step on the philosophers and theologians here, but there was a time when there was nothing else but God. And God was complete in himself. He wasn't lacking anything. He didn't create the world because he was bored. He didn't create people because he needed them. He created us, For his good pleasure, to bring glory to himself and to share his love with us. Because God is love, the Bible says. And this Lord Jesus, this one who came into earth and walked among men first before he ever became a human being, he was the eternal God. That's what he always was in his being. Okay? Now, notice what comes next in verse 6. Here's where you begin to see the kind of mindset of the Lord Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now you say, what does that mean? Well, that idea of robbery has the idea of seizing something, of grabbing something, taking it for yourself. And the idea seems to be that the Lord Jesus didn't say, now this is my position— and I'm going to hold onto it tight. Sorry, I'm getting a little perspiration here in my eyes. So if I blink, I'm not flirting with you. I'm just trying to see you more clearly so I can appreciate you. But it was the idea of holding tightly your position. I don't know if you've ever had a really, really good chair. I have two in my living room. I'm so thankful I have two. Because if I have one, I know myself, I'm a reader. I love to read books. And my oldest daughter, Anastasia, is like this too. When you find a good seat, a good chair to sit in, a comfy chair, that's the technical term, a comfy chair, and you're a reader, you just can lose time. You can lose the world around you. You lose everything. You don't care. You just want to sit there with your book and read. Now, if I only had one chair like that in my living room, it would be a problem. Because I know when my mother-in-law comes, she wants the good chair. And if I only had one such chair, well, I'd have a a moral dilemma. Do I do the nice thing for my mother-in-law and give up the seat for her? Or do I have the comfortable chair for myself? And even now, though my mother-in-law is a lovely lady who's been so kind to me and continues to do so much for me and doesn't at all resemble any of those mother-in-law jokes I've heard in my life, though my mother-in-law is such a sweet lady, in my heart, I don't want to give up my chair. So I'm thankful I have two. So whichever one she sits in, I can sit in the other and be quite content. You sit on a bus. You've been hiking around. You've been up El Capitan, and then to cap it off, you went up Half Dome, you know. And uh, you can't be left behind by some of these young bucks at the conference, you know. And suddenly you decide, oh, my legs are aching, and I just want to sit down. And you get on the bus, and you find this marvelous seat right under an air-conditioned vent. I wish I was there now. Anyway, (laughs) you sit there, (laughs) and people get on the bus, And you start thinking, well, I hope open seats remain for those people. (laughs) And then suddenly there's no open seats around. And the grandmother gets on the bus, you know? (laughs) And you say, oh, I know I ought to give up my seat for them, but it's so nice. You know, we spend so much time in our lives working for position. We want to be the starting pitcher, we want to be the quarterback. We want to be the CEO of the corporation. We want to be the boss at whatever it is. We strive for position. And it's funny, the higher we go, the less we want to give our position up. You know, you ever want to see uh, somebody who has an ego, well, just ask the starting quarterback to sit on the bench. Tell him it's for the good of the team. Now, it doesn't matter if he's thrown 20 interceptions that season. And the Raiders fans can relate to me here. It doesn't matter if he's thrown 20 interceptions this season. He doesn't want to be benched. He wants to go into the game. He says, put me in. This next game's going to be better, you know? It's going to be like Rudy, Rudy, or something like that. He doesn't want to give up his position. And if he has to give up his position, he's scheming. I want it back you know what? All of us know what that's like at some place or another. It might be position in our family. It might be position among our friends. It might be position at school. It might be position at work. But we know what it's like to crave position. To crave the recognition and the glory and the power. I like that, you know? I want to be the guy who is a decision maker. Or I think President Bush had it, the decider. Yes, I can amend that sentiment. That's what I want to be. I want to be the guy calling the shots. I want to be the guy that other people come to for favors. You know, I can really relate to Marlon Brando. You come to me and you ask me for a favor. Never mind. Anyway, you understand we as human beings do this very easily. Now consider the Lord Jesus Christ. He is eternally in the form of God. That is what he is in his intrinsic being. And as God, he has the position that he is higher than everything else in the universe. Because as the Bible will tell us in John chapter 1 verse 3, for example, everything that has being came into being through him. Not anything that has being has being without him. I think it is John 1 3 says. And Colossians chapter 1 tells us all things... Were created by him and for him. And by him, all things consist or hold together. And Hebrews 1 adds, he upholds all things by the word of his power. So here is the creator, supreme over all, the highest position. And yet he says, I'll give up my position. Now think about what he's giving up. We have a sister in my home assembly that we've commended to Ecuador. And she goes into Ecuador, into jungle communities where she sleeps in conditions that would make any campground here look posh. And she has drunk things that people make there by regurgitating fruit into a bowl, okay? And she has eaten all manner of creepy crawly bugs. And she has lived among dirt and squalor, so much so that when she comes home on furlough, she spends her first month or so getting rid of all the parasites in her body. And the people that she goes among, she does that for one reason. She wants to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. She wants to tell them the good news of how Christ loves them and came to save them. And she goes among them and the people she serves cannot begin to imagine what she leaves to come and serve them. They can't picture what air conditioning is like in a house. They have no concept of all the electricity and the gadgets and doodads that we have. They don't have the medical system that we have access to. They don't have all the things that we have. They couldn't begin to fathom the world she leaves behind to come and serve them. Now, can you imagine the God of heaven... The one who made all things, the one who was in that glorious place where there was nothing to defile, nothing to sully or dim his glory, nothing to affront him or displease him. In fact, every being existed there. All of the angels and archangels and seraphim and caravim are there crying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. They're falling down and worshiping him and they exist moment by moment to carry out his every behest, and no one dares come into heaven and spit on him, or even say a word against him. The Lord Jesus existed in that glory. But you know what? He said, I'm not going to hold on to that glory. I'm not going to grasp it so tightly that I won't give it up. Instead, what will I do? Well, here's what it says in Philippians. It says, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but he made himself of no reputation. Now, those who study Greek words will know literally there, it says he emptied himself. But I'll tell you something, philosophically, you can't empty yourself of what you are intrinsically in your being. You can't stop being the very things that make you you in your intellect and in your person. So he didn't stop being God. He didn't empty himself of God. In fact, in the context, it's obvious we're talking about a positional emptying, that the Lord Jesus came and took a low position. A hymn writer put it this way. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself in matchless love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. The Lord Jesus emptied himself, yes, of what? One Greek scholar put it this way, of the outward insignia of glory. In other words, he veiled himself in flesh. Brother Trogdon quoted this morning that other hymn, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. The Lord Jesus veiled that glory and came incognito, if you will, among humankind. In other words, all the Renaissance masters had it wrong. He wasn't walking around with a halo above his head or glowing in the dark. He wasn't incandescent. The Lord came and looked like any other man. The verse says it explicitly, in fact. Look again at verse 7 there. It says, he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant. That means a slave. We'll get back to that in a moment. But it says, coming in the likeness of men. Now, what does that mean? It means... That when you looked at the Lord Jesus, you didn't say, this looks like an extraterrestrial being. This looks like some glowing figure who is not from around here. No, the Bible says the common people heard him gladly. The Bible says little children loved to come and approach the Savior. He was a normal, ordinary-looking man. In fact, at one stage in his career... When he came to the point of his death on the cross, what Isaiah 53 said became literally true. When we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. The Lord Jesus laid aside that outward kind of brilliance and glory. Now, some of you ladies won't dream of going out of the house without your hair done and without your earrings. And some of you look remarkably put together considering where you're living this week, you know? Even some of the guys, especially the single ones who have hope, you know, they're here and they still might take a look in the mirror before they come to the meeting. They might make sure that the fade is all straight, you know, and and they look pretty good and they'll, they'll throw on a bit of the aftershave. And now I've blown some covers, no doubt. But think how important it is to us to look good when we go out and to seem good to people. And yet when the Lord Jesus came, he came in the likeness of men. He looked like an ordinary man, not like God coming and walking among us. He looked like a man, but it says in the likeness of men. Why? Because it goes on to say in the next verse, being found in appearance as man. And the idea is not that he didn't truly become a man. John would tell us in 1 John 1, We saw him, we examined him carefully, and our hands handled him. We touched him. The Lord said, Touch me and see, to Thomas in John 20. A spirit has not flesh and bones, as you see. The Lord ate fish. He was a physical being. He was a man with true humanity, a real physical human body and wonder of wonders, a real human nature as well. With this one distinct difference from any of us, the Lord was absolutely sinless. The Lord was impeccable, incapable of sinning. In fact, the Bible, when it speaks about his humanity and speaks about him identifying with us, it usually hastens to add, it was sin apart. In other words, don't connect the Lord Jesus Christ with sin. You know, the Lord himself throughout the challenge, which one of you convicts me of sin? Which one of you can put up your hands and say, well, I saw Jesus do this or that. You know, there were people that had known him his whole life, people from his hometown there. There were people that had followed his every move. Crowds followed the Lord Jesus in his public ministry almost everywhere he went. And no one came forward and put forth any proof or any kind of thing that said the Lord Jesus was a sinner. In fact, when he was put on trial for his life, they couldn't even find false witnesses that were credible. So holy was the Lord, so pure was the Lord, that to suggest he had done something was absolutely ludicrous and they couldn't get their stories straight. In the end, the judges who heard his case, both Herod and later Pilate, said this man has done nothing worthy of death, and this man has done nothing amiss. And even the convicts crucified around the Lord Jesus said, we're getting what we deserve, but he's done nothing wrong. See, the Lord Jesus was sinlessly perfect. And I'm so thankful he was, because as we read in verse seven, he came and took on him the form of a bondservant. Now that's that same word form that we saw back in verse six. And remember, that's what I said is what we essentially are. In other words, this verse is saying, not that Jesus came and pretended to be a servant. The Lord Jesus came and became a servant. Now, we have these dear folk back in my neck of the woods. We call them senators. I suppose you've heard of them. And every once in a while, especially when an election is coming, you can cajole one of them to come out to your town and open up a hospital or a school or something or maybe plant a tree on Arbor Day. And it's wonderful to see these fellows when they do this, you know, they roll up in limousines with their entourage and they get out in their thousand dollar or more suits and somebody hands them a hard hat and they put on this pristine, spotless hard hat and someone hands them a pristine, uh, beautiful, gleaming shovel and they come up and they act like they're going to dig the hole. Right. (laughs) Let me tell you, I don't know when the last time in American history was that a sitting senator dug a hole. I don't think it's that recent. And that's okay. We don't elect them for ditch digging, do we? No. (laughs) But, you know, those people, in doing that, that's for a photo op, isn't it? It's what we call pretending to be a servant. Pretending to do the work. And they're saying symbolically, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, I'm behind this project. I support this work. Well, isn't that very nice? But you see, the Bible says that's not how the Lord Jesus Christ came to this world. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, he said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now that takes us to the heart of why the Lord Jesus didn't hold on to that position of glory in heaven, but humbled himself and came to earth and became an ordinary looking man albeit he was God manifest in the flesh. He came as a servant, specifically a servant that God had been talking about for more than 700 years. Because you can go back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah and you can read in chapter 42 and chapter 49 and chapter 50 and chapter 52 into 53, the four servant songs The four songs that talk about a savior, a Messiah, who was going to come and be the perfect servant of God. And the Lord Jesus came to be that servant. Well, what kind of a servant was he? You know, from time to time, if you have a job, you probably get an evaluation. You probably have to be reviewed. Probably someone above you in the corporate structure has to consider your performance and say, now, how has he done? Well, think of this servant. He went about doing good and healing people, healing people that were disabled, opening the eyes of the blind, giving hearing to the deaf, letting the mute speak, casting demons out of people, cleansing lepers, even raising the dead. Not only did he follow the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm, the Lord Jesus always did good toward others. In fact, he could say, I always do the will of him who sent me. He alone perfectly did the Father's will. How obedient was he? Our verse says it explicitly. He was obedient, verse 8, to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, death is bad. I hate it. It is an interloper in our universe. Intuitively, as human beings, we know that death doesn't belong here. We sorrow. We feel the loss. Our loved ones, our friends, people we've known, even people we don't know but we hear about. When we hear about someone dying, we're sad. And it's right that we should be so. Christians are no different. Except the Bible says this, We sorrow not as others who have no hope. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it says that. The Lord Jesus was obedient unto death. That's not just saying that he died. It's saying that in his obedience to God the Father, he was obedient even to going to the cross which was the most calculatedly cruel and humiliating form of death that had ever been devised up to that point in human history. Where, according to Roman thinking, you hung a man up between heaven and earth and you were saying, this man's the lowest scum. He doesn't deserve to be accepted by heaven nor to continue on the earth. And to a Jewish person, in particular, of which the Lord Jesus, of course, was a Jew, Their Scripture said in Deuteronomy 21-23, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So a man hung on a tree is not just a criminal worthy of death. He is the worst kind of person that you are pronouncing the curse of God on. You're saying this is the most vile, most evil, worst person in the universe. You say, well, why would they take a good man like Jesus one who always did good, one who always did the Father's will, one who never sinned, why would he have to go to the death of the cross? Because after man did their worst to him, after they spat on him and beat him and whipped his back till it looked like a plowed field, after they pulled the hair from the beard of his cheeks and smote him and buffeted him and mocked him and said, prophesy Christ who smote thee, after they nailed nails through his hands and feet and hung him up to die what they thought would be a slow, excruciating death of progressive suffocation as he basically drowned in his own body fluids. After man sat down callously to watch the Lord Jesus die like that, something even worse happened. I mean, can you imagine being on the Titanic And someone saying, we hit an iceberg, and as that's settling in, but I've got more bad news for you. (laughs) I mean, what can be worse than the knowledge that the ship is sinking? You know, well, there's not enough lifeboats, or the water's really cold, or some such thing you could be terrified with. But after all man could do to the Lord Jesus, as bad and as hurtful and as painful as that was, physically and emotionally and mentally, to the Lord Jesus... Something worse happened to him. And ironically, it didn't come at the hands of wicked, sinful human beings. It was God himself, the righteous judge, because the Bible says that God is a triune being. There's one God, but he exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You say, I can't understand that. Well, praise the Lord. I can't either. But if I could explain him, he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? God, the righteous judge of the universe, took the sins of you and the sins of me, took the sins of the world, and put them on the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus, for three hours, went through the judgment that our sins deserved, endured the wrath that we should have gotten. We who are so self-absorbed, we who can be so evil in our hearts, if not also in our actions, and certainly in our words. All of those things, not put on us, not falling on us, but falling instead on the Lord Jesus. All of that judgment, falling on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus bore it all. He said, the cup that my father has given me, shall I not drink it? And he didn't stop on that cross. He didn't lay down his life until he could say, it is finished. A term in their original language, which was one word, and it meant paid in full. The Lord Jesus gave his life up as a sacrifice for sin, for our sins. But that wasn't the end of his story. This passage goes on. You see, it says there in verse 9, therefore, because of that, because of what he did, because of how low he stooped, How much he didn't think of himself, but thought of others, thought of us even before we were in this world. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Well, please define for us every knee. Of things in heaven, you say, well, we expect that. There are the angels And there are the saints of the ages who have gone before. Certainly, they willingly bow and call Jesus Lord. Ah, but more surprisingly, it says, and those on earth. Because frankly, there are a lot of people that don't want to bow to Jesus Christ. There are people probably sitting here tonight under the sound of my voice who don't want to bow to the authority of the Lord Jesus. You don't want to say, Lord, to Jesus Because your attitude is, hands off my life. Your attitude is, I still want to have fun. I still want to be popular. I still want to be in control. I don't want to say Jesus is Lord. Well, there's coming a time in this universe's future when every being on earth will bow the knee and acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But more surprisingly still, it says, and things under the earth. A way of the Bible describing what we commonly think of as hell. The abode of the dead and those in particular who are impetitent, who haven't bowed willingly to Christ. And have passed out of this life without receiving the Lord Jesus and the forgiveness and the salvation and the cleansing that he offers through his sacrifice that he made on the cross of Calvary. They're going to bow the knee too. And every tongue shall confess, it says, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not only that he's the supreme master of the universe, but that he is God. And that all of his claims are true. I want to make a special offer to you tonight. I want to give you the opportunity to get in on something good. Get in on the ground floor those from the Bay Area and from points surrounding, you understand how that jargon excites people in the technology industry and Silicon Valley. If you could get in on the next Google or the next YouTube, whose co-founder went to my high school, sorry for that plug, but anyway, or the next Facebook, and you could get in on that and you could be part of the IPO. Oh, you'd say that would be wonderful. Someday I'd be a veritable Warren Buffett. (laughs) Or I'd be satisfied with just 100 mil. I'm not too picky, you say. I want to get it on the ground floor. Well, you know what? You can get on the ground floor financially. And in your lifetime, you can watch it all go up in smoke. But I'm going to offer you something tonight to get in on the ground floor of that will change your life right now in this life. And it will abide for eternity it will go into the world to come because i make the offer to you tonight that god would offer you to be reconciled to him to be brought into a right relationship with him through his son the lord jesus christ you see it's good to know that jesus is god but the bible says satan and the demons know this and it doesn't save them they know it and tremble no it's good to know that jesus is god You may even know that Jesus' death on the cross was a sacrifice for the sins of the world. That's tremendous. But you know what? You can know all that and still go to hell. I'll give you the opportunity tonight before the rest of the universe is compelled to do it willingly or unwillingly. Tonight you could bow the knee in your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight, you could say, Jesus, what that man said about me is true. What your word says about me is true. I'm a sinner. I'm lost. I'm the sinner for whom Christ died. And I can't save myself. As the hymn writer put it, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I come trusting in the Lord Jesus, trusting in the death and the shed blood that he made at that cross of Calvary, trusting in the fact that he rose again from the dead and that what he says he can do, he will do for me, that he will save me and change me from the inside out, that that power of his resurrection will work in my life to make me like the Lord Jesus till he comes and receives me to himself and changes my body so that I can live with him for all eternity and love him and enjoy him and fulfill what I was created for. You can do it tonight. You can do it right now where you sit. You can say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me, Lord Jesus. And if you really mean business with God, he will save you. No matter what you've done, no matter what your background, no matter how laden with guilt you are, the Lord Jesus says, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You can come and be saved by faith in him tonight. Of course, I may not be clear. You may not fully understand what I'm offering you. I understand that. I'm not a perfect speaker, I regret to say. But I urge you to talk to someone who brought you here if the Lord's speaking to your heart and you say, that resonates, I realize the problem is myself and I need a savior. Talk to your Christian friend. Have them explain the gospel to you. Go over the verses again and come to the Lord Jesus Christ because to leave this world without him and to leave this meeting, in fact, we're not promised a second chance. You may get other chances, but there's no guarantee. To leave this world without him is to be lost. That would be a terrible shame after all the Lord Jesus has done to save you. All of the Lord Jesus left and humbled himself to do on your behalf. And yet you say, sorry, I don't want it. What a horrible, horrible thing that would be. And you'll live for eternity to regret it in hellfire, in the lake of fire, if you do. May God help you tonight. May you understand how much he loves you, how much he wants to save you, and what he can do for you if you give yourself to him. Father, we're thankful tonight for the Lord Jesus. We marvel, and those of us who know him, we willingly say, Jesus is Lord, our Lord, my Lord and my God. How honored, how blessed, how happy we are to say that. But not everybody here can say that, Father. We pray for anyone here without the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for anyone who may hear this later on recording. We pray that their hearts would be pricked, that they'd understand they are sinners in need of a Savior, and that they'd come to that Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and cast themselves on him for salvation. We pray it in his holy name, that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.